0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Let us turn now to our scripture lesson, which comes to us. From Genesis 28, beginning at verse 10, hear the word of the Lord. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was loose at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, we have gathered here to encounter your word. No mere mortal words will do. So be gracious to our seeking the word that can come only by the Spirit. Allow us to find our own lives in this sacred text that we too may be renewed in the identity of a people who have been blessed and called to be a blessing. This we ask in the name of the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody has a dream. The dream is what gets you up in the morning. It's what you are after in your life. The dream is why you left your parents' house. It's why you got an education. It's why you got a job and then a different job and maybe a job after that. It's why you moved from one city to the next. Even if you don't know what the dream is, it still pushes you along and drives your life. The dream is what got you into a relationship. It may be that the dream got you out of a relationship. Every significant decision that you've made has been made based on how close it gets you to your dream. The problem is that dreams keep moving ahead of us. They're very hard to actually catch. Now, there are some people, like Esau who is Jacob's older brother in this story, who have lives that appear to be just dreamlike to us. Esau drives us crazy. He's just stumbled into every blessing the world has to offer, and he seems to take it all for granted. And when we look at Esau's popularity, his prosperity, his good looks, we realize that some people are just born right. And in ancient society, to be the firstborn meant that all of the good things were coming your way, all of the family inheritance. This is why we tend to understand Jacob better. He describes what life is like for those of us who weren't just born lucky, but who are still determined to make something of our lives. Because we decided a long time ago that the world is divided between those who have it made and those who have to make it happen. And we proudly put ourselves in the second group. We will do whatever it takes to make our dreams come true. And by the way, that resolve to do whatever it takes to get what you want is exactly how we make most of our biggest mistakes in life. Even Esau should know that the greatest dreams are never things that we achieve. Think about the things that are absolutely most important in your life right now. The people that you love, who love you. Maybe uh, the children that you were blessed with. Maybe the discovery of a created purpose in your life and a way in which you can contribute and make a difference in the world. Or maybe it's uh, a friend or, or a group of friends who have proven that they will stay with you through anything, even the truth. Or maybe it's even something more basic and still more important, like the very breath in your lungs or the sun that rises in the new day. Which of these things did you earn? Which of these things that we can't live without have come by our own achievement, by our own hand? None of them, all of them have come to us as blessings from above. And you cannot earn a blessing. You cannot pry a blessing out of God's hands. You can only humbly receive them. But you can mess up a blessing. And the best way to do that is to insist on getting it for yourself. And that's the great temptation in Jacob's life. Frankly, in my life, and maybe yours too, we keep trying to achieve what we can only receive. Jacob was so focused on getting all of the blessings that he saw that were gonna head towards his older brother Esau, that when the time finally came for their father Isaac to pass on the blessing, Jacob decided he was just going to steal it. Now, his older brother Esau was, a, was kind of a man's man, big hairy guy out in the fields. The text tells us that Jacob was a smooth man who preferred to stay in the tents. Jacob was kind of a mama's boy. So if he's going to fake out his father, whose eyesight was failing him, he had to dress up to look like Esau so he got on Esau's smelly clothes, and he got goat hair, put it on his neck and on the back of his hands. And he went into his father's tent for the blessing, and his father is feeling him. And he says, who, who is this? And Jacob says, I am Esau. Now, this was a lie, of course. But up to this point, Jacob has spent his whole life focused on Esau, trying to recreate his life now in the image of Esau. He's almost telling the truth. But the problem is that God had already promised to bless Jacob, never Jacob pretending to be Esau. Can can you imagine what this scene must have looked like from the perspective of heaven? God is looking down and he... He sees Jacob in these big clothes that he's wearing and he, he's got goat wool taped to his neck and his hands and he's trying to hustle his blind father out of the blessing. And God has to be thinking, ay, 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 this is my guy. <laughs> God is not blind. God knows who you really are and is determined to bless you, not the you that you dream about being, not the preferred image of yourself, the real you. When my friends and I finished seminary and we went to our various parishes, a very close friend of mine went to a church that was in a a rather affluent community. Uh, He was almost embarrassed to drive up and to begin working in this community, um, driving his beat-up old Volkswagen. And The more he drove this beat-up car around this affluent community, the more embarrassed he became. He said the worst part about this car is that it started to talk to him. Every time he turned the ignition, he could just hear the car say, failure, failure, before it would finally start. Failure. Well, he saved, and he saved, and he saved, and in time he received a raise or two. Finally, he was able to buy a new car. It wasn't anything fantastic, but it was new. It wasn't embarrassing, but much to his horror, he discovered that the new car could talk also. Now, every time he turned the key of the ignition, he heard it say, fraud, fraud, you don't deserve this. What are you doing here? You're just pretending you belong here, fraud. You see, even when we find a way to achieve the things that we think will be God's blessing in our lives, we discover they do nothing for our souls. They're just making us dress up like frauds, people who look more successful. The soul is yearning for something much deeper than that. The soul is yearning to receive what only can be provided by the hand of God. Well, in stealing this blessing from his father, Jacob has pretty much destroyed his family. His mother was in on the scheme with him, and that no doubt created problems between her and Jacob's father. Jacob's father is in lament when he discovers that he's been hustled out of the blessing and given it to the wrong son. And Esau, when he discovers that the blessing's been stolen from him, is enraged and claims that he's going to kill Jacob. So Jacob has to run away from home the very home he was trying to get for his own striving. Now he's a fugitive from that home. And along the way, he becomes exhausted and he he finally rests and he falls asleep at a place called Bethel, which means house of God. And now this man who had been absolutely vexed by his dreams in his sleep, receives God's dream for him. And in this holy dream, Jacob sees a ladder that goes from earth all the way up to the top of heaven. And on this ladder, he sees angels descending and ascending. Note that as much as we might all love that children's song, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder, Jacob isn't actually on the ladder. In fact, most of the mistakes that Jacob has made in his life, he's made precisely because he was trying to climb up. No, it's the angels, the messengers of God, who are descending from heaven to him. That's the journey of a blessing from heaven to us. And we're told the Lord God was standing next to Jacob. And amazingly, the Lord reaffirms the promise to bless Jacob, And in verse 13, we get perhaps the most incredible part of this reaffirmation of blessing. The Lord says, I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go. Really? After all of the mess that Jacob has created, in his own life, and in his family's life, after all of the hurt, God climbs down from heaven to stand next to him and says, I will keep you. And I will be with you. And I will bless you. Can any of us imagine a more extraordinary blessing from God than the divine decision to say, I will keep you. We know what we have done and left undone. We know about our sins that have hurt others and hurt ourselves. We know that we have broken what we cannot repair. But in Jesus Christ, God has climbed down to be with us, to say that I will forgive you and I will keep you and I will heal you. Clearly, we cannot earn such amazing grace, this blessing for which our soul yearns most of all. But know that it has always been God's dream for you just to receive it. That's all you can do, is to receive the mercy from heaven. Well, Jacob is so overwhelmed to be the recipient of such grace that the next morning he makes a pledge to God and says, I will return to you 10% of everything that you give to me. This is the introduction in scripture of the concept of proportional giving, a proportional returning back to God that which we have received. It's a practice that has long been commended by communities of faith for literally thousands of years. Now, sometimes Christians will say, this sounds like the tithe to me, and isn't that part of the Old Testament law, and we're not supposed to be under the law anymore? Well, no, let's look at the text. Once again, this is, this is an, a practice that's begun by Jacob. The law doesn't show up for another 400 years. So this has nothing to do with commands. This has to do with an offering of gratitude provided by a man who says, now I get it. I understand that my life is lived by the gracious hands of God. I understand that everything I have yearned for and actually needed is only going to be provided by this grace of God. I understand it. I am grateful. And because I have been blessed by God, I want to be a blessing. Here is 10% of this back. This is the only really good reason to be a giver. In stewardship season, let us remember that you are asked to give not just because the church has needs, although I am clear that the church has a lot of needs in order to support a ministry of this nature, this wonderful ministry, lots of needs, but that's not the primary reason we ask you to give. We ask you to give because you need to be a giver who, like Jacob, gets it, who understands that everything that you are holding has come to you as a blessing from God. And one of the greatest blessings is that you have the opportunity to use a proportion of that to be a blessing yourself. So whether you decide to give 3% of your income or 10%, or 15%, let us all begin by remembering that 100% of what we are holding has come to us from God. Or if you prefer financial language, everything that you're holding is God's investment in your life. And at the stewardship season, you decide what kind of return God will get on this investment. This is why the church doesn't send out annual invoices with like membership fees. Because it's calling you to maintain an incredibly important conversation with God. Your pledge is not ultimately to the church. This is between you and God. And it's your opportunity to say that you get it. You get your life's purpose. You get your identity. You get why you've been entrusted to these things that you are holding. And you get that they have a sacred purpose to it. So one of the most important, one of the most spiritually intimate conversations with God you will have all year is the one you have as you decide what you will put on this pledge card. What proportion of what God has given to you will you return, but you're never gonna do that until you first see that it's all been given by God. When I was in graduate school studying church history, we had an exchange student from Korea who spent a year with us in some of our doctoral seminars. His name was Kim. And uh, we got to know him because these seminars are relatively small. And, and Kim had this wonderful practice of any time there was an American holiday, he would show up with presents for everybody in the seminar, all like eight of us, I think. Even small holidays like Flag Day or Columbus Day, President's Day, we always got presents from Kim. Uh, and they were small because he was as poor as the rest of us. But he would pull things out of his bag that he had prepared for all eight of us. And he would go around the circle, and he would hand them two of those. And no matter how small the gift was, even if it was like origami, he always used two hands to present the gift to everybody. Two-handed giving every time. So after about the third time around, one of us finally asked, Kim, why do you always use two hands when you present these gifts? He says, oh, I don't even think about it anymore. It's just a custom of my people. It's a symbolic thing. It means that in giving you this, I'm actually giving you all of me. Wow. I'm giving you all of me with two-handed giving. Now what makes this all the more striking is that this was in an early church seminar and we were studying the writings of the early church father, Irenaeus who, working out one of the first images of the Trinity, said, just as the Father runs down the road and stretches out both hands to embrace the prodigal in return and to pull the prodigal into his heart, so the Father in heaven reaches out with Son and Spirit, giving us all that heaven has to give in order to pull us back home to God. And here he's quoting the first chapter of Ephesians, Where the Apostle Paul says, in giving us the Spirit and the Son, we've received every spiritual blessing from the heavenly places. God has given us all that God has to give with two-handed giving. This is the God in whose image you are made, who invites the self-understanding to be one who gives with both hands. You know, so much of my giving is one-handed. I'll hear about a need, and I'll go, yeah, you need need some of that? Yeah, I can get by without this. Here, you can have that, because I've got all of this. And some of our charitable giving is like that. Now, charitable giving is a wonderful thing, and God uses it to help build the kingdom. But it's not exactly what the church is asking of you. Charitable giving assumes that you still own all of this money and you'll decide what needs you want to give it to. The church is inviting you to a whole different understanding of giving, one in which you open up both of your hands and realize that all of this has been placed there by God. When it comes time to give, you and God need to have some really important, as I said, spiritually intimate conversations. The conversation will go like this. Okay, God, how much of your money, what proportion of your money here do you want to go to the church? What proportion of your money, God, do you want to go to these other places where I can clearly see you at work? What proportion, God, do you want of your money to go to my budget? Now, the church is never gonna answer those questions for you. Again, this is between you and God. But the church will invite you to think a little differently about your giving in calling you to be a proportional giver. It Doesn't matter how much or how little you're holding, Every one of us has the dignity of being a proportional giver, the dignity of realizing that we were blessed with what we're holding in order to be a blessing. And the church will put before you the big question, what is possible? As you look at all that you're holding this year, rather than just filling out the card the same way you did last year, ask what is possible this year? What percentage is possible? Is it possible to go up even 1%? Is it possible to make a change in my giving? Is it possible for me to understand my purposes on life differently as a steward of all that I'm holding? What is possible? What is possible for our church? If everybody began to think this way, what is possible in the kingdom of God of Christians across the land? All gave up the notion of owning what they have, of calling it mine and realizing it's already, already belonging to God. What would be possible if we took seriously the fact that we have been blessed and given the holy dignity of being called to be a blessing? In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.